Open your Bibles this morning to Matthew, the sixth chapter. Matthew, chapter six. If the Lord wills, today I shall conclude my preaching to you regarding Bible economics. I'll do it in two sermons as I have several points I want to make this morning and several more this evening. Matthew chapter 6 for our opening passage of Scripture this morning. I have spent nine sermons now in a row in which I have set forth before you the importance of making money. Nine sermons in which I have set forth before you God's requirement for you to be ambitious, diligent, with plans and goals financially and meeting those plans and goals. I have been the most carnal preacher for nine sermons running, if you were to ask most ministers. I mean, I have been, en- I have been emphasizing the mammon of unrighteousness. But am I in good company? Did Jesus Christ not say, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness? Luke chapter 16 and verse 9. Did not Jesus say, If a man is faithful in that which is least, he'll be faithful in much? How does Jesus Christ measure his true disciples and those, those worthy of receiving the benefits, the greater benefits of the gospel? Those who know how to turn a buck and those who work hard at doing it. You say, I've never read that in Scripture. You haven't read Luke 16, verses 9 through 12. You say, Paul never taught that. Well, my whole basis for this series of sermons has been taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where Paul told you what you're to study. Paul never called upon the saints of the Lord to study the doctrine of predestination. Did he? You don't have a verse saying where God told you to sit down with your Bibles and read Romans 9, 10, 11 and become thoroughly acquainted with the doctrine of predestination so you could confound and confute the free willers. God's ministers are supposed to do that. There's one verse in the New Testament where you're told what you're to study. Here it is, 1 Thessalonians 4. Don't turn, I'll just read it to you. Paul said, And that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. That is sanctification. We have in the past put a great emphasis upon you knowing the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of baptism, the doctrine of the church. But listen, those are the principles of the faith, and they don't result in practical godliness. Practical godliness is what you do on a day-to-day basis, putting into practice what God wants you to do, not what He wants you to know. We're moving on unto perfection. Remember, ministers are given to perfect the saints. Until we measure up to the stature of the fullness of Christ. And Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 is about. Personal sanctification, being holy in your lives. Now, how are you holy? According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 3 and 4, you avoid fornication. Verse 6, you don't defraud the brethren. Verse 9, you love one another. 
And verses 11 and 12, you learn how to do your business well and you make enough money to provide things honest toward them that are without so that you won't have lack of anything. That is sanctification. That is what I've been trying to teach you. I mean, I've taught you not to commit fornication. I've taught you not to defraud your brethren. That came out again in this series, didn't it? Not defrauding the brethren who do services for us. Jeremiah 22 and verse 13 tells us we must pay them wages. And I've taught you how to love one another many times in the past. This is true religion. I'd much rather have a church that practices 1 Thessalonians 4 than a church that can quote Romans 9 through 11. I thank God that, I have a ch- that we have a church here that comes close to being able to do both. Most of you are very well grounded in the principles of the doctrine of Christ and what separates us from the other 260 Baptist churches in this county. But we need to move on in our daily lives so that we can provide things honest toward them that are without. When they look at us and see our progress financially, our diligence on the job, our faithfulness toward our masters in the flesh, they want to ask a reason of the hope that is within us that motivates us to be different from the rest of this world. Listen, there aren't any workers left. Talk to anyone over the age of 50 who's been around through at least two generations and ask them what they think of the workforce today compared to what it was a generation or two ago. We live in an age of idleness, of slothfulness, and we are receiving the same judgments that God poured about out on Sodom. Sodom was known for their pride, their fullness of bread, and their abundance of idleness. And Ezekiel 16:49 tells us that is why God destroyed that city. God did not destroy Sodom because they were a bunch of faggots and dogs, which they were. The fact that they were faggots was a result of their abundance of idleness. Therefore, God destroyed them, Ezekiel 16 and verse 49. I love that passage of Scripture. Do you know why? Because there isn't a verse in Scripture that fits the United States of America better than these three qualifications. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness. This is true sanctification. And I've spent nine weeks talking about money. How to get more. How to keep it. How to use it. What God expects you to do with it. Now this morning, I'm going to draw back on the range just a little bit. And I'm going to preach the restrictions of Bible economics. What God wants you to keep from running to in the way of excess. You know, every doctrine of Scripture has ditches. Ditches, plural on both sides of the road. Now, there's one ditch I'm most concerned about relative to this congregation. And you know what? It's not the ditch of excessive ambition. Every minister had better be able to measure his congregations and know what they need and to be able to emphasize those. And if you can't see that from reading your New Testament, you haven't read it very perceptively. When Paul wrote the Thessalonians, did he spend one minute warning them against excessive ambition? Not on your life. I mean, that church was a bunch of lazy bums. He had to write them two epistles and say that as we commanded you in the first epistle, if you don't put it into practice by the time this second epistle arrives, separate from that man and have no company with him because we didn't behave ourselves disorderly among you. We worked day and night travailing in labor to give you an example and whosoever will not work, shall not eat. That was written in the church at Thessalonica. They were known for their slothfulness. Now, there are other places in Scripture where men had the other problem. And we'll get to some of those this morning, and that's what I want to deal with 
pull back the reins just a little bit so that no one thinks I'm preaching half the counsel of God. But I will tell you that I will emphasize ambition, diligence, and savings in this congregation far more than I will the warning against an excessive ambition because of the need of this congregation. Matthew chapter 6, the restrictions of Bible economics. The first restriction I want to give you this morning is that you need to maintain godly priorities. A priority is the order of things in your life and the order of their importance. And we need to maintain a priority. Verse 33 of Matthew 6 has this to say from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus made it easy for priorities. You don't have to sit down and wonder what it is. Jesus told you, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What things are under consideration? Verse 32, The things which the Gentiles seek after. Financial gain. God will add that to you if you keep your priorities straight. And the priority is to seek God's kingdom and His righteousness first. God has never promised to make your plans for your life a success. God has never promised to make your plans for your life a success. God has promised to make His plans for your life a success. And there is a difference. There is a difference. Look with me at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. What is the first allocation of your energy? What is the first allocation of your time? What is the first allocation of your money? Aha! We've got that one answered, don't we? With rule number two, pay God first. If you pay God first, you've already sought God's kingdom and His righteousness first financially. But what's the priority of your time, your energy, your money, your preparation? Were some of you so busy yesterday concerned with the acquiring of the mammon of unrighteousness that you made no efforts yesterday afternoon, last evening, this morning, to prepare yourself for the worship of God this morning? Are you seeking God's kingdom first in preparation, in effort? Some of you wouldn't miss a day's work if you, were, if you should be in the hospital. You'd be at work. Are you to the Lord's services as faithfully or more faithfully if you're seeking His kingdom first? You'll miss work to be here. That's how you put it first. In Mark chapter 10, in verse 29, we have these words. <clears throat> Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels. <clears throat> now see, Peter had just said in verse 28, Lord, we've forsaken all to follow thee. Now, Jesus grants that men will leave things for the gospel's sake. They will leave house, financial loss. They'll leave brethren and sisters, father, mother, and they'll even leave their wives and children, and they'll leave their lands for the sake of Christ and the gospels. 
Now, see, those are your plans. God's never promised success for your plans for your life. There's your plans. A house. My own land. A family. That's what I want out of life. Well, that's your plan. God says he's, he may not grant that. But notice what he will grant in verse 30. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses, plural, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, plural. Now, how many mothers can you have? And children, I love the king. Don't you love your Bibles? I mean, did they drop that S in there? Did they forget that you can only have one mother? Or is that there to point you in a different direction than your physical mother? And children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. God hasn't promised you to, that you'll be successful with your plans for your life, but He has promised He'll make you successful with His plans for your life. And His plans include houses, plural. Now, how can you have houses, plural, if you forsake your house? In verse 29. I feel like I own a number of houses this morning. You know why? Because some of you have told me that I'm welcome in your house anytime. And I've told most of you that. My house is your house. You're welcome in my house anytime. Now, there aren't too many women in this congregation old enough to be my mother. But some of you I respect and treat as mothers. Plural. Mothers in the gospel's sake. See, my plans for my life didn't work out, did they? Oh, I had plans. You know, I've taught you to set plans for yourself, and I had plans. I had one-year plans and five-year strategic plans for my career, for a house and for lands. Two of you have seen the house, saw the first house and the land that went with it. Fifteen acres, fifty miles outside of Detroit. But God took away that land and that house and gave me lands and houses that I wasn't seeking. God hasn't guaranteed success for your plans. He's guaranteed success for His plans if you'll obey Him. How do you get that? How do you get the reward of verse 30? Forsaking of verse 29. If you don't give up your plans and submit your life to seek God's kingdom first, and that is why I am in Greenville, South Carolina. I boast. I boast. I am here to seek first God's kingdom. I had it all in Detroit, didn't I? I had the true church, and I had the best job in the world. I had it. I could be a good Christian and a good banker. But God wasn't going to let me get away with just being a church member and a banker. So I forsook my plans, and God has blessed me, and I have told you ten times if I've told you once, the last two years of my life have been the most successful years of my life as far as how God measures success and true happiness. Look at Matt, Come back to Matthew chapter 10 this time, the book of Matthew and the 10th chapter. My first rule of Bible of the, that restricts Bible economics is to make sure your priorities are straight. Jesus said in Matthew 10:39, "He that findeth his life shall lose it." I was finding my life in Detroit, but I lost it. If you try to find your life 
By putting that life first, you'll lose it. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. I have used many personal illustrations through this series of sermons simply to give you something to latch hold on. I normally don't do it, as you well know, as some of you have criticized me for. Not enough personal illustrations from my own life. Remember, I have told you what the president of Michigan National Bank said to me when I left Michigan National. They offered, they knew they couldn't offer me anything, so they played games with me with numbers. Would you come, would you stay for such and such an amount, knowing that I wouldn't stay for any amount? Wondering what the look of fear on their faces when I said I'm leaving to go to a church that has 24 members in Greenville, South Carolina. Now, you've got to understand the mentality of a Catholic who's used to thinking in terms of 800 million members of the Roman Catholic Church worldwide. And you tell the president of a bank that you're going to a church that has 24 members, and he says, well, the archdiocese is going to help you out, isn't it? That was what was said. I'm losing my life, in his opinion, but I found it. But I found it. And that is in store for every one of you. If you lose your life for the sake of the gospel, and sometimes that will mean some pretty heavy sacrifices. But if you do it with the right attitude and you're truly fearing God and loving Christ for what he did, you will say that it is not enough to give for what God has given you. It's exactly what my attitude has been. I wish I could have resigned the presidency of the United States to show God that I was willing to lose anything for him and his cause. If you'll put your spiritual life, the life of God's kingdom, and a life of righteousness first, you'll find your life in a way that you'll not find it any other way. You try to find your life in this world, you will lose it, and you'll be miserable in the meantime. I can talk a great deal about that also. Come back a few pages to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This is a plain verse that I want to show you. I know what your deceitful heart will tell you. You've got a heart that I can relate to perfectly. I know it as well as I know myself. And your heart will tell you, I can have both. Jonathan Crosby couldn't have both in Detroit, but I know the Lord hasn't called me to preach, so I can have both. I can serve mammon and I can serve God. I'll have the best of both worlds. I'll have my cake and eat it too. Here's what Jesus said about that dream in verse 24. No man can serve two masters. No man can serve two masters. For either, here's your two alternatives, he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. What are you serving this morning? What do you do with your time? Is your time allocated to make sure you do everything that the Scriptures require of you time-wise? Do you maintain some type of Bible instruction for your children? Do you maintain preparation for the worship of God on Sunday morning? Do you maintain time for dedicated prayer? 
What about your energy? Do you throw yourself so much at the activities of the other six days of the week that when it comes to Sunday, I have to look at glassy eyes and you don't wear glasses? Do you allocate your energy so that you have maximum energy on Sunday morning? Or is it late to bed on Saturday night, late up on Sunday morning, and you use Sunday to catch up for the rest of the week? Listen, Sunday is not the last day of the week. It's the first day of the week. What, what, what are your priorities? That's what I'm talking about in restricting Bible economics. I've taught you everything I know from the Word of God about acquiring what God expects you to have financially and working diligently. But what are you doing with your time, your energy, your money, and your preparation? You can't serve both. You cannot serve both. Rule two, God wants you to study to be quiet. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, here's what you're to study. Study to be quiet. Now, is Paul dealing in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 with you learning how to control your mouth? I thought James dealt with that in the book of James. And I thought Solomon dealt with that in the book of Proverbs. I didn't know Paul was dealing with that in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Well, he's not. When Paul is dealing with quietness in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he's dealing with a different type of quietness. He said, study to be quiet and to do your own business. It's quietness that's related to business. Look with me at Psalm 39. Psalm 39, and we shall see the quietness or the lack of quietness that Paul is condemning. Psalm 39 and verse 6. Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. Is the world quiet today? Do the ungodly of this world have quiet lives? Or are their lives filled with noise, anxiety, worry, frustration, fear that never gives them a moment's rest? This is a description of the natural man, the men of this world. Every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. See, they're not enjoying quietness. Disquieted. They've given up their quietness in order to acquire riches. And what's going to happen to the riches? They're going to die and leave this world. They don't know who's going to get them. Study to be quiet. What does it mean to be quiet? It means to order your life in such a way that though you are working diligently to acquire the wealth, the amount that God expects you to have to meet the financial obligations that I taught you, you will do it in a quiet way with the least degree of carefulness that you can get the job done with. Remember, Paul condemned your lives being filled with carefulness in 1 Corinthians 7.32. I would have you to be without carefulness. Every time you make a decision that increases care, you're sinning. Unless God allows you to make that decision. Did you know that for some, of, that for some men in this world, for them to get married, they have sinned? If they have a gift of God not to sin... By marrying, they increase their carefulness. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 is all about. When he said, I would have you to be without carefulness, he said the single man and the single woman can give of their time completely to me. 
The woman that's not married cares for the Lord in body, soul, and spirit. But the woman that's married cares for the things of her husband. That's the context. Something is practical and is good and is godly and is innocent as marriage is something more to consider with a careful eye before we enter even marriage that we don't increase our care unnecessarily. That's a quiet life when you make decisions to keep your care limited. There will come a time for some of you that a promotion will have to be denied, possibly. Because to accept that promotion will increase your care to such a degree your minds will be overburdened with the cares of this world and you'll be unable to seek first God's kingdom because your mind will be continually worrying about all the problems you have in the job. That time could come unless you prepare for it. Now, I've told you I made preparations for that point early in my career by letting the bank know that I would not manage a division. There's one place to go in a company and that's to assume more people responsibilities. That's the primary way that you get a higher salary and promotions. In take greater people responsibilities. But let me tell you, there is no job that requires more care and worry on the job and after hours than worrying about people. I made it known right off the bat that I would not have a department or division reporting to me that involved a great number of people. So I designed a department that wouldn't need a great number of people. Bond trading doesn't need a whole lot. All it needs is the bank to provide me all the phones I can handle and all the screens. But early on, I was taught that there was going to come a point where I'd have to say no. So I designed what I wanted to do in a way that would be the minimum amount of care. Generally, a bond trader can go home at night and not worry about a thing unless he's got a trade on that's going the wrong way. And then, forget people problems. It's the worst. It will wrench your insides out. But the point I'm making is this. All of you... Many of you could get to a place where God will require you to make a decision about carefulness. You'll better make the choice that puts God first. And how's that choice? The choice with the minimum amount of care. If you're offered some promotion that will require a great number of people reporting to you, where you'll be worried about that job, and it's going to become a burden to you, you should pass it up and see if you can't find some other route to take. Why? Because Paul said, I would have you to be without carefulness And he said that relative to marriage, let alone a job. How can we possibly pray in 1 Timothy 2.2, as Paul commanded us to pray, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty? We come together on Sundays and pray for the Lord to bless us that we may lead a quiet life. Then we go out during the week and create all the noise in the world trying to make a buck. Isn't that hypocrisy? We ask the Lord and pray for political quietness and then we create economic noise. You follow what I'm saying? Are we ever guilty of that? Don't we beg the Lord that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives? And then we have lives filled with noise and unrest financially. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. The book of Ecclesiastes, the fourth chapter. Here's what Solomon said in verse 6. Ecclesiastes 4, 6. Better is an handful with quietness. Better is an handful with quietness 
than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Now, I have spent nine sermons trying to teach you how to be diligent and get ahead financially. But I am now telling you that there comes a point where you better stop that pursuit if it becomes vexation of spirit and too much travail and takes away your quietness. It is better to forego the promotion with its increase to have the quietness. And who said that? Solomon the wise man. Solomon. Do you think he should know? Do you think he was ever promoted? Who promoted Solomon? The Lord of heaven. Was there anyone above Solomon? The richest that there was or would be. And he said it's better to have a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. You need to watch your lives as they get too filled with care and concern to draw a line someplace to keep some quietness. And by quietness, I mean a life not filled with care, anxiety, and worry, but one in which you can enjoy the things God has given to you to enjoy and that you can make your priority decisions more easily. Look at Psalm 127 with me. Psalm 127. Paul said, study to be quiet. And I'm trying to give you a few verses on what that means and how to do that. Now, I have practically beat you with the responsibility to work hard. I have screamed about working 72 hours a week. If it was good enough for God and Christ and all of our forefathers except the last two generations, it's good enough for you to work about 72 hours a week. Listen, there's 168 hours in a week. 72 is not even half. And I've taught that from the fact that God worked six days and then rested. God did not work five days and God did not work four days as much of American labor would like to have us work. He worked six. And Jesus told us how many hours men work in a day. Twelve. He told us that in John chapter 11, verse 9. He told us that in Matthew 20 where he gave the parable of the householder who went out and hired some servants at 6 a.m. and hired others at 9, some at 12, some at 3, some at 5, and they all got paid at 6 p.m. That's 12 hours. <laughs> and if you work 72 hours, you will be different than the rest of this world. Now, that doesn't mean, and I've been over this so many times before, I don't want to waste time. That doesn't mean you have to punch a clock at some place that measures 72 at the end of the week. There's other things. I mean, if you're going to school... Why are you going to school? To increase your productivity and ability to be promoted on the job. That's part of your work. Or any time you spend at home studying or time you spend at home keeping your house up. It's all work. And while I've emphasized that, let me give you a verse to keep in the back of your minds. It's not a verse I want in the front of your minds. It's a verse I want in the back of your minds. You know how many times Solomon said, Love not sleep, lest thou come to poverty. Drowsiness, drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. The slothful man saith, A little sleep, a little folding of the hands to sleep. That's what Solomon said the slothful man says. I want you to remember those verses in the front of your mind because I believe those are the verses you need to remember. But listen to this verse. Psalm 127, verse one and, verses 1 and 2. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. 
Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. Now listen to this. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. There is a happy medium that we all must draw. Now this verse says, God gives his beloved sleep. And it is vain for you to get up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, doing nothing but work. The only way you can understand Psalm 127, verse 2, in light of what Solomon had to say in Proverbs, is to realize that there's a happy ground between the two. It's too much sleep that's sin. But God expects you to have sleep. God expects you to take rest. What he is teaching in this verse is don't think that you by yourself getting up early and staying up late and eating the bread of sorrows is going to get the job done. Because except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. You try to build the house by yourself, it won't get built. Because unless the Lord's in the matter, it's not going to get built. But he gives his beloved sleep. Not too much. Not like the door on its hinges flopping back and forth in that bed on some cold morning as Solomon condemns. Except once a week. Did you know that once a week you better take some time off? Now, I preach working six days pretty hard because that's what God set forth as an example. But what did God do on the seventh day? Nothing. Nothing. He rested. Do you have one day out of the week in which you take some beloved sleep? I mean, it may be nine o'clock. It may be ten. It may be noon before the covers rustle and you crawl out. God expects you to do that. Now, I believe I've told you that during World War II, when the auto plants in Detroit were thrown into war production mode, they thought to increase productivity, they'd work everyone seven days a week. Guess what they had to do a few months later? Put them back on six days to get productivity back up. They could produce more in six days than they could in seven. You know why? Because God said to rest the seventh. If you'll take one day aside and get your sleep, your beauty sleep, whatever you want to call it that you need, you'll feel better for the other six. And listen, that's what God did. And he did that as an example for the rest of us. And he hallowed that seventh day as a wise principle for us to keep it. It is vain for you to rise up early and to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, unless you realize the Lord's in the matter and you're not going to do it all by yourself. You work your 60 hours in the job and 12 hours at home or however you break it down and leave the rest to the Lord. Don't think that by going to 85, then to 95, and then to 100, you're going to get the job done by yourself because the Lord gives His beloved sleep. Study to be quiet. There is a time to be quiet just to lay in that bed and tell the kids to shut up. Lock their doors. Just stay there and enjoy the time of rest. I know some of you do that and I have long made it a practice. One of the first things my children learn is that they never get out of bed until I say they can get out of bed. That works well one day a week. The third restriction of Bible economics is to hate riches. Now, I've taught you to work hard to acquire some wealth because you've got five objectives that God has laid on you to meet financially. There are five things you better be, you better have money for, and I've taught you that. 
But at the same time, I want to teach you to hate riches. Why do I use the word hate in conjunction with riches? Because God said the love of money is the root of all evil. And I believe that. When he said it, I believe it. He didn't say money's evil because he requires you to have some money. He requires you to give money to your minister. He requires you to give money to your children and to your children's children. He requires you to give money to the poor saints. He requires you to give money to yourself in times of adversity to protect yourself. But he said the love of money is the root of all evil. I hope all of you know where that passage is found. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul's very plain when he writes to Timothy about the danger of setting your heart or desires on wealth. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Beginning at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. See, that's quietness. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to be getting ahead the way God measures it? Godliness with contentment. That doesn't mean you get content when you're not meeting God's financial goals. That means you meet God's financial goals and you're content with meeting them, not becoming the youngest millionaire in your county. 1 Timothy 6.6 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, the basic essentials, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. That's a pretty severe warning. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Can you think of anyone for the love of money who erred from the faith? I can think of Balaam. Balaam, for the wages of unrighteousness, tried to curse Israel. Remember? Balak, king of Moab, offered him money. Peter calls it the wages of unrighteousness. What about Achan? God had said when they destroyed the city of Jericho, when Israel took the land of Canaan, no one was to touch anything. They were to burn the whole city and all of its possessions. And Achan saw a goodly Babylonian garment, a wedge of gold and some silver. And he sinned, erred from the faith. What about Judas? He went and met with the Pharisees and covenant and said, How much will ye give me? Matthew chapter 26. It's drowned men in destruction and perdition the love of money has. It's not money that does it. It's the love of money. It's the desire to be rich above and beyond what God wants you to have. Once you meet your financial objectives, once you have an inheritance building for your children and your children's children, if you're paying God first to a degree that you're happy with before the Lord as being a liberal, you have a reserve fund laid aside for poor saints, you have a reserve fund laid aside for yourself for the day of adversity, be content and work on godliness. Don't keep working for more and more. If more comes, be thankful for it. 
because it will come. Look at this same chapter. Many people say, well, having money. If you're rich, it just shows that you're carnal. Look at verse 17. The the very same chapter, Paul told Timothy, charge them that are rich in this world. What? That they give up their riches? That they distribute to everyone in the church so that they're no longer rich, but everyone's rich? No. He said, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches. There's the sin. Trusting in those uncertain riches or getting high-minded about it. If you love it because of the power and glory that it brings you, you're in sin. If you love it because it's going to protect you in the day of evil, you're in sin. God is your refuge and He's your only refuge. Having wealth is not a sin. The Bible's filled with wealthy men. Job was the richest man in the East. Abraham was so rich he couldn't dwell with anyone else, including his family. His possessions were so great. Solomon, God made rich. David, exceedingly rich. And so forth. Many men in Scripture had abundance of wealth, but they knew how to manage it. It's the trusting in wealth that what is what God condemns. Not the wealth itself, but trusting in that wealth or having an inordinate affection for increase. And in this society where everything is measured quantitatively, it's easy to become obsessed with increase. The quality of life is irrelevant to people as long as it's bigger, faster, stronger, or there's more of it. Isn't that right? How you treat your employees is the bottom of the list. It's what your ROI is, return on investment, that counts. More, bigger, stronger, faster. But what about the quality? Godliness with contentment is great gain. And see, in verse 5 of that same chapter, 1 Timothy 6, the Apostle Paul condemned those who think that gain is godliness. This world measures godliness by the amount it has gained. If you were to go on the campus of Oral Roberts University or Bob Jones University, they're both of the same die, they will tell you from their pulpit over and over and over again, I know I've been there to the latter of those two, thank God, not the first one, they'll tell you that just look around. Can't you see that the Lord has blessed our institution? They measure godliness by gain. The Bible says you measure gain by godliness. They have the horse before the cart. You look around and you see prosperity. When you know the institution is in doctrinal error, what does it say about God's relationship to that institution? It's a judgment of God, Proverbs 132, giving them the prosperity of fools. God will grant prosperity to fools to keep them in their foolishness once they reject the space of repent- time of repentance He gives them. The pursuit of financial riches, the pursuit of being rich, of making money beyond what the Lord expects you to make and becoming obsessed with that desire is the vainest, the vainest of all human endeavors. I mean, Paul just told you here in this chapter, you didn't bring anything into this world and how much will you take with you? They're not going to allot you a change purse on your way out of this world. Pursuing riches is most vain. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Who do you think would know best that riches are vain? You say, well, I don't think you would because you haven't been that rich. I'll grant that. 
But there's a man in Scripture, and I thank God that he gave him riches so that he could write from experience, let alone inspiration, who told us how vain it is to try to pursue riches. I gave you the rule that I tried to use at Michigan National and taught widely that expenses will rise to absorb all available income. Remember that? It'll do it in your home budget. You know that. I mean, how many of you are saving naturally? How many of you save without thinking about it? None of you do. Expenses rise to absorb every penny you have and usually more. That's why some of you end up with uh, larger numbers on the credit side or the liability side of your balance sheet. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, here's what Solomon said about that principle. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. When income increases, expenses will increase to absorb the income. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them, and what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? You can look at one terrific income statement showing all that money coming in one side and going out the other in expenses. All you can do is behold it with your eyes. Solomon saw that. Solomon knew that. And he wrote about it in Ecclesiastes 5. Pursuing riches is the vainest of all human endeavors. Why? Because verse 10 says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. If you want silver, and once you have a thousand ounces, you've got to have ten. Once you have ten thousand ounces of silver hid away in some Swiss bank account, you've got to have a hundred. Once you have a hundred thousand ounces hid away, you've got to have a million. You've got to have a million ounces hid away in several Swiss bank accounts. And once you have a million ounces, and Nelson Bunker Hunt would testify to this if he was here this morning, you've got to corner the market so that you own it all. 1980 and 1981, he tried to do that. Was he happy with owning six to seven million ounces himself? No, he tried to corner the market. And listen, Solomon knew about Nelson Bunker Hunt before Bunker Hunt was born. Solomon said, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. And he wasn't. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. He'd testify to that also. Today, Nelson Bunker Hunt's a poor man compared to what he was ten years ago. Nelson Bunker Hunt is a net debtor just as you are, many of you, or as some of you were. The Lord willing, after this series, I won't ever have to say that again about our congregation. Pursuing riches is vanity. Why? Because as you get it, you're going to want more. You'll never be satisfied because it is not a satisfying objective God has given for men in this world. You'll never have enough. And as you get more, your expenses rise so that you don't even get to use what you do get in the way of increase. Not only are you not satisfied with that, but the fear of loss becomes an oppressive burden. Look at verse 12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. But those riches perish by evil travail, and he begetteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a sore evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? Go ahead, labor for riches. You're laboring for the wind. You'll never get your hands around it. 
All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. What's his sickness? What causes his wrath? What causes his sorrow? What causes his eating in darkness? Those, that bank account, that Swiss bank account. The Swiss government could be overthrown and confiscate all the accounts they have in their Swiss banks. I could lose my money even in a Swiss bank account, he says, and he's unable to sleep at night. While the man who labors and is content with simply what God requires of him, his sleep is sweet. You want sweet sleep? Then you draw a line. You restrict Bible economics so that you don't engage in vain pursuit of riches. What are the true riches in this world? Are those riches something you can buy with money? Or are the true riches in this world something you cannot buy with money? The Word of God is one riches, one source of riches to me that while it takes a few bucks to buy it, if anyone here thinks they have to buy it with money, I'll buy you one. If you need a King James Version, I'll buy you your own copy of it. But it's something that cannot be bought with money. The fact that God has given us His Word. Now, David described that Word over and over again, especially in Psalm 119, where he said that he loves His Word above all riches, that it's sweeter to his taste than honey and the honeycomb, that it was more valuable to him than gold and much fine gold. We sing that Psalm in Psalm 19 many times in our worship. Is the Word of God more important to you than all riches, gold, silver, and increase? Are you as wise as Moses was when he was in Egypt, the richest nation on earth at that time? One of the first of the great empires? Moses was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But what did he do? He chose the reproaches of Christ greater value than the riches of Egypt. Hebrews 11.26 Is that your choice? Is that the kind of choice you make? That you'll pass up extra accomplishments or acquiring things in this world in order to make sure that you acquire what God wants for you in His Word. The reproaches of Christ. Not the blessings of Christ, but the reproaches. I mean, what did Moses get for choosing the Israelites? What did Moses get? He got 40 years of smelling like a shepherd on the backside of the desert. I mean, he didn't smell that way when he was in Pharaoh's court. For 40 years, he was a stinking shepherd. For 40 years after that, he had to put up with a stinking people who disobeyed everything he told them. Continually murmured. And you know what? Moses chose that way of life above the riches of Egypt. We're a despised little flock. I mean, we're one of the smallest churches in Greenville. Don't have our own building. No pipe organ. No stained glass. When you tell people where you, when people ask where we meet, you have to tell them, Room F of the Quality Inn at Lawrence Road and I-85. The reproaches of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of modern Egypt, the U.S. of A. Is that your choice? Are your priorities in the right place? Do you hate riches? See, Moses hated riches. David described his gladness in Psalm 4 and verse 7. He said that his gladness in the Lord exceeded economic prosperity. 
David said, Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. When the wicked have an increase in corn and wine, they're glad. I mean, they celebrate at the end of the year for another prosperous year. David said, Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. Do you hate riches just that way? Jesus said not to labor for the meat that perisheth. Now, I've taught you about labor. He said to labor for the meat that endures unto everlasting life. John chapter 6. Is God's word important to you more than your necessary food? Job chapter 23, verse 12. Job said the word of God was more important to him than his necessary food. We have great riches in having the word of God, the truth of the gospel, which is nothing but the declaration of the riches of glory that are in Christ Jesus and that we shall one day enjoy in person. We have that. You need to hate riches. The riches of this world will never match up with those things that God has given to us in his gospel. What are the three restrictions of Bible economics? Maintain godly priorities. Seek God's kingdom first, not second, and don't let it come in with a tie. Some of you know that I hate ties worse than a loss. I mean, at least when you lose, you know the other team's better than you. When you tie, no one knows anything than before they first played. Don't come in with a tie with God's kingdom and righteousness, and don't let it come in second best. Seek God's kingdom first. Second, study to be quiet. Make choices in your life about part-time jobs, about promotions, about the house you live in, about obligations that you assume that will minimize your care and risk and anxiety and worry in life because we're told to study to be quiet. Learn to hate riches. Riches are an evil and the love of those riches are evil. David said, when riches increase, don't set your heart on them in Psalm 62 and verse 10. That's the attitude you ought to take. Let them come if God blesses you with riches by putting into practice his own rules. But when they come, don't set your heart on them. It's interesting when you read Mark chapter 10, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and Jesus told him to sell his goods, give the poor and come and follow him. And the man turned away sorrowful because he had great wealth. Jesus said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, the disciples got bent out of shape on that occasion because Jesus had said, how shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of heaven? Well, you go over to Matthew and you find where the same account is recorded and Jesus said, how hardly shall they that trust in their riches enter into the kingdom of heaven? That's my point this morning about hating riches. Don't hate the thing itself. Hate the love of it or hate those and their way of trusting in it as a savior as a defense, as a protector. God is our refuge, not our riches. Let me very briefly cover a few objections of Bible economics and we'll close this morning. There are some who will raise objections against what I've taught you in recent weeks. I just want to mention those objections and quickly mention their Bible answers. Some will say, Christians should not be concerned about gain like you've been teaching. Because the Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain, so we just ought to be content with whatever we have. And we shouldn't strive for gain. They'll quote Luke chapter 3 and verse 14 where John the Baptist said to the publicans, or to the soldiers, excuse me, be content with your wages. Now, I've told you 
not to be content with your wages. If your wages aren't high enough to meet God's goals, you need to get out there and increase your wages or get another job with more wages. But John the Baptist said, be content with your wages. How do we answer that objection? Well, we go to James chapter 4. And in James chapter 4, James describes some individuals who were saying, Go to now. Let us go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Now, have any of you ever made plans a year ahead of time? I'm going to do this for the next year to make some extra money or to make some money. James described those in James 4, 13 through 16. Now, did he criticize them for being overly ambitious? Being ambitious in an ungodly way? Or did he criticize them for not saying, If the Lord will, we will go into such and such a city, continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain. Not a thing wrong in planning to get some gain. Just make sure that you remember, if the Lord don't, if the Lord isn't in the building of the house, they labor in vain that build it. And if it's not the Lord's will for you to do that, you will not get gain. You submit everything you're doing to the will of the Lord. See, James shows us that getting gain is not wrong. It's getting gain without trusting in the Lord that's wrong. Well, what did John the Baptist mean when he said, Be content with your wages? What do soldiers of any nation do when they're occupying another nation? They spoil the nation. They steal its goods. They ravage its women. They take whatever they can. John was telling the Roman soldiers who were occupational forces in the land of Palestine, be content with what you're paid out of taxes by the Roman government and don't steal from the populace. That's all he meant. Be content with your wages. Now, if they could get promoted from sergeant to colonel, by all means, they were to do it. Because God expects you to be an ambitious servant, which a soldier is. But they weren't to take from the populace which is the situation of the occupational soldiers of the Roman Empire. Some argue, you've talked about putting, your, putting our money in the bank to earn interest, while you've even encouraged our children to learn about bank accounts at an early age so that they appreciate the time value of money and that while they wake or sleep, they can have their money earning more money for them. God condemns usury in Scripture. Does He? Does He condemn usury? Look at a verse... There's so many verses we could turn to. Look at Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22. You will run into this one. I have run into this one this very week. This very week where an honest Christian was concerned and convicted in their conscience about taking, earning interest, which is usury. Exodus 22 verse 25 If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as an usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. When aren't you supposed to charge interest? When you're loaning money in the form of charity to someone who's poor. Because God knows why interest is there. Interest is the price of capital. But listen, my friends, when you give money to a poor person, it is not an investment except with the Lord. Remember, when you give to the poor, it's an investment with the Lord and the Lord will pay his debts, according to the book of Proverbs. But when you give your money to the poor, it's not a financial investment directly with them. You give it to them without interest attached. And if you will look up every occurrence of the word usury in your Bibles, you'll find that it's condemned when giving to the poor. 
I mean, the parable that Jesus Christ used in Matthew 25 about the ten talents. About the talents. The man with five. What did he do? He put them in the bank, the exchangers, and earned interest so that he had ten when the Lord returned. The man with two put them in a bank. And he had four when the Lord returned. He earned two in the way of interest. The man that had one, why was he condemned? Because he didn't earn any interest. He put it in a checking account instead of a savings account. Another argument that some will make is that Christians should not buy insurance because if you buy insurance, you're not trusting the Lord. I want to tell you what you're doing if you don't buy insurance. You're tempting the Lord. Listen, when you pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, do you have bread in your freezer for tomorrow? Or are your cupboards bare like Mother Hubbard and you're, ask, you're actually asking for bread today? If you don't have bread in your cupboard for tomorrow, you haven't provided for your own and you're worse than an infidel. If you don't have means of self-defense and you ask God to protect your home, you're tempting God. How did Abraham protect his home? 318 trained servants with mini Mac 10s and Uzi machine guns. You say, how do you know that? Well, I'm not sure. But he did arm them. When his nephew Lot was taken away by the king of Sodom, and the king of Sodom was taken away, Abraham armed his 318 trained servants with weapons, and then he thanked the Lord for giving him the victory. God expects us to use means at our disposal and then thank Him for the proper use of those means. And I've preached on that so many times with so many Bible examples I need not repeat anymore. But insurance is a way that we have in our generation to protect ourselves from catastrophic loss. If you have the means of insurance at your disposal and you don't use them, then you're tempting God. Remember the devil came to Jesus Christ one time at the top of the temple and he quoted Scripture and he quoted it accurately. He said, Lord Jesus, Jesus, he'll call him Lord in a few days. He said, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, why don't you cast yourself down from this temple because the Bible says that his God's angels will bear thee up lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now see, there was a fire escape going down the back side of that temple. There were stairway, there were stairways to get to the top of that temple and stairways to get down from the top of that temple. And Jesus turned to the devil, and although the devil had quoted the word of God, and although the devil had quoted the scripture accurately, Jesus said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. If you don't provide for insurance for your family, and you get on your knees and say, Lord, if I die tonight, please provide for my wife and my four children under the age of six, you're tempting God. When all you have to do is call, look in the yellow pages, and give someone $125 and you'll have $100,000 of life insurance for a year. You're tempting God. Don't let anyone tell you that if you use insurance, you're not trusting the Lord. You tell them if they don't use insurance, they're tempting the Lord. And remember, did Abraham trust in God? Was Abraham a faithful man? Yet how did he defend himself? With prayer from his lazy boy? Or with 318 trained servants? We need to use means in conjunction with trusting the Lord to keep the city, to build the house. Do you follow? Except the Lord wake the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. But yet we do put watchmen out to try to wake the city. But yet we trust the Lord to use the means. One last point I want to make this morning that was raised last Sunday, and that is 
Gambling is not expressly denied in Scripture, so is not gambling a matter of Christian liberty? Now, we teach the moderate use of alcoholic beverages because the Bible does not condemn the moderate use of alcoholic beverages. The Bible recommends the moderate use of alcoholic beverages. Now, the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about crap tables, lottery tickets, and Las Vegas. So, because the Bible doesn't condemn gambling outright, then is gambling a matter of Christian liberty? Gambling, as I'll define it here in a couple minutes, is not a matter of Christian liberty. It is sin. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 24.9, the thought of foolishness is sin. The thought of foolishness is sin. And it is a foolish man that spendeth and wastes his substance. We've been over all these verses so many times I don't need to quote them for you or turn you to them. You've read that there is much treasure to be desired in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. The slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. See, a diligent man considers his substance to be precious. If your substance is precious, you don't throw it down on a crap table or any other game at Vegas or at your local arcade or at... Atlantic City, where you know the odds are in favor of the house and you're guaranteed confiscation of your property. I mean, that is the, the ultimate in waste and not counting your substance precious. Proverbs 18.9 says, He that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. If you waste your money on gambling like that where you know the odds are against you and there's no degree of information or knowledge involved but simply a game of chance, then you're just like a slothful man and you know that slothfulness is sin. However, there are different kinds of gambling or what the world calls gambling or what Christians might call gambling that are dependent upon the degree of chance in the game. For instance, if you go to Vegas, the degree of chance, it's not pure chance. It's chance in favor of the house. It is guaranteed confiscation. You know, people often wonder about suicide. Is it murder? Gambling is stealing from yourself, if you can grasp the concept. Suicide is murder of yourself. Gambling is stealing from yourself. Because it's already guaranteed confiscation by another party. However, there are kind of gambles like this. What if one of you, with three of your co-workers, threw $10 into a pot, and said, whoever loses the most weight over the next 60 days gets the pot. Is that a gamble? Now, it would often be called a gamble, wouldn't it? A bet. We've all bet $10. We might use that expression. That's not a gamble. Now, those are wages. Those are wages. If you lose the most weight over the next 60 days, you earned the $40 that's in the pot. There wasn't chance involved so much as there was your effort to lose the most weight. If someone else lost more weight than you did, they earned the wages ahead of you. Now, it gets very shadowy. It gets very shadowy. I thank Brother Gerald for this statement. He said, if the Lord's people understood how many gray areas a minister had to deal with in a church, they'd leave. There's a lot of gray areas in religion. It's a Pharisee that will say all gambling is condemned 
He'll never give you a definition because it would condemn so much of what we do. Risk is part of all of our lives. But we manage that risk by information. We can reduce or increase the odds by acquiring greater information. For instance, many people would have said what I did at Michigan National in the interest rate futures market or the commodities markets, gambling. Many of you may know of people who've been in the commodities markets. That's just gambling. You're just throwing your money to the brokers. Oh, no, you're not if you spend the time to study the markets and you have good sources of information and you can respond quickly to the market. But many people consider investment markets gambling. I mean, if you invest in stocks, they say, you don't know what stock's going to go up, you're just gambling. Well, you are if you enter the stock market or the commodities market without any training or effort at learning that market. But to the degree you study that market and you acquire the means to invest in that market at least close to a par with the professionals, you've reduced the odds against you to put the odds in your favor. The whole spectrum of gambling or the use of money ranges from a game of total chance in favor of the house, which no one would stay long in, to earning wages in a pot like I described that you might have with your co-workers. You've got to remember that in Vegas, when you go to Vegas, if you have a mind that is capable of beating some of their games like blackjack, there are a couple of men in the world who have a memory so sharp they can count the cards in a deck and memorize all of them as to where they're at in the table and what cards have been dealt and what cards haven't, that they can beat the house. Do you know what happens to those men? They're picked up and carried out and put on the right of way out in front of Caesar's palace or any other place. They don't want anyone like that in there taking the house. Some of you may have seen or read about some of those men. It's a great feat of accomplishment, and I respect them highly for being able to beat the house. But the very point that they throw those men out is that they're not running a, an honest game house. You know, a man that acquires that degree of skill ought to be paid, in my opinion, for his skill. But the question was raised, is gambling sin or is gambling not sin? The answer, yes and no. Yes and no. Let me take it one step further. Some of you may have put money down on football gambles. One team against another. Is money down on a football team the same type of gambling that you'd engage in in a machine at Vegas? No, it's not. To the degree you have followed both teams, to the degree you have followed both teams, you may very well know that the odds are in favor of one team winning. In most games, there is definitely a favorite team. Now, you should not put any money down for such a game unless you have met all your financial objectives or are in the process of meeting your financial objectives. Because in football, a lot of things can happen and there is no gamble that is sure. A couple other things to consider relative to gambling. Can you gamble to the glory of God and do it in the name of Jesus Christ? Remember, whether, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God in the name of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Colossians 
Can you do it that way? Does your gambling have the appearance of evil? If it does, you don't do it. Abstain from all appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 Will your gambling cause a brother or one in the world to be offended and stumble if he sees it? If so, you can't do it in his presence. And when I'm using the word gambling, I am strictly referring to those types of games, activities, or investments whereby information and diligent study you may improve your odds. Any game, like a lottery, where study or information does not improve your odds is sin. Buying a lottery ticket is sin because it is stealing from yourself. A lottery ticket is a certificate of guaranteed confiscation. You're giving to someone else. The odds are all in favor of the house, otherwise known as the state. It's a method of taxation. You give to the Lord. You don't give unnecessarily to the state with money that God expects you to use. Remember, it is the slothful man that roasteth not that which he took in hunting. But, a dil- but, a, but substance is precious to a diligent man. Proverbs 12:27. Your substance should be very precious to you. It should only be doled out to where God can justify its use. And you can justify its use before God, doing it in the name of Jesus Christ to His glory and meeting your financial objectives. I hope that has helped in some way. That's often been a question, especially when we have a church in Las Vegas right in the center of that hell hole and what they have to deal with out there. People often ask, what's your position on gambling? Yes and no, depending on what kind of gambling you're talking about. The games of chance in Vegas, they're sin. Lottery tickets, they're sin. Pools for losing weight. A wager on a football game. Wagering with your children who can memorize the most verses in a week. Those are wages. It's not a gamble. It's whoever works the hardest. I trust that some of the things I've tried to teach you this morning about maintaining priorities, studying to be quiet, hating riches, and knowing how to answer objections against Bible teaching on finance may be answered with the Word of God and will be to your encouragement, comfort, and benefit.